So glad to have you worshiping with us. You know, whenever we do Welcome to Church Party, I always tell people that when you're coming somewhere new, it feels like everyone else knows everybody else. Uh, one thing I know is true, they actually say the statistic is, is 60. Once your church is bigger than 60 people, it's impossible to know everybody else. But, but this is what I, I've discovered, that this is a great time to be new. There's so many new people coming into our church. Maybe you're one of the old Bethel people, and you're like, this is my home church for a long time, and you're wondering who all the new people are. And all the new people are like, oh, I, I don't feel comfortable kind of hosting. I, I'm still getting adjusted myself. I just want us to be a kind of church where it doesn't matter if you're young or new, that you just feel comfortable putting yourself out there. Introduce yourself. Invite people to coffee. Invite them to lunch and, and let them be part of the Bethel family. Amen? Amen. How many want to be the, the friendliest church in British Columbia? How about that? That would be a great, a great uh, thing for us to aspire to. Well, like I said, welcome to all of you worshiping with us online. We're so glad to have you with us today. Um, you know, I love to eat. You guys know that, don't you? Uh, you hear all of my stories about eating. But have you ever, like foregone something just because it, like the effort it took or the mess that it, it just wasn't worth the effort to you? Is there anything that you don't eat just because you're like, it's so messy, so much effort for me? You know, like crab legs. Now, I don't know if I'm doing it wrong. I know crab legs are a delicacy, but like the amount of effort and mess, anything you need to wear a bib to eat as an adult, I'm kind of like, I don't know. Like, you could just give me a steak and it would just be like so much easier and accessible. You know, you just get so much more meat out of it. How about sunflower seeds? Any fan of sunflower seeds in the house, right? Like, just like eating that, the sucking the salt off it, and then like spitting out the shell. And you're supposed to spit out the shell in case you didn't know that. I had a nephew when he was little and he didn't know. He went to a baseball game and he ate a whole bag of sunflower seeds and didn't spit out the shell. Yeah, it didn't go well for him later that day. I'll just tell you that much. How about nuts that require a nutcracker? You know, anything that needs a nutcracker, you just like, you know, it all explodes all over the place. The worst has to be pomegranates, though. Have you ever tried to eat a pomegranate? Did you know that? I had a pomegranate, and I did, could not for the life of me figure out, like, this is just like, I had to watch YouTube videos. There's YouTube videos that will explain to you how to get the seeds out of the pomegranate. The effort it takes and the mess it makes just makes it seem not worth it. How many are glad for seedless watermelons? Anybody? Seedless watermelons. Have you ever been at like a picnic or a backyard barbecue and like well, you get like the, the watermelon with the seeds in it, right? It's like, it depends on the kind of event that you're at. Like sometimes you can just like, like spit them across the yard, like, right? You, you can start a contest, like, you know, it's watermelon seed. But like when you're in like a, you know, like a fancy gathering, you know, maybe like a, a bridal shower or, you know, like a wedding party or something, you know, what are you supposed to do with the seeds? Like, you spit them on your plate or maybe you're like me, I just kind of tried to do like, you know, the discreet kind of like, what do you do with that, right? So I'm thankful for seedless watermelons. Uh, a little while ago, we, I was going to the fridge to get a snack, and I told you in the new year, I'm trying to make some healthier choices. So I, I was going to the fridge for some fruit, and so I got some grapes out of the fridge, and I ate some grapes, and I was almost shocked because the grapes had a seed in it. It's been so long since I bought grapes with a seed in it. It was like a mistake. Who bought the grapes with the seeds in it, right? We don't, we buy seedless grapes in this house, right? And it made me realize how accustomed and normal it had become to eat seedless grapes. Well, it's so much easier and way less messier to get seedless fruit, isn't it? Well, where are we going with this, Pastor? Well, you'll have to wait and see in just a minute. But we've been in a series over the last uh, month, a mini-series. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit. 
And we recognize that when it comes to the nature of God and understanding God, we really relate well to God the Father. We can understand God the Father. We relate well to God the Son and Jesus Christ. But for many of us, when it comes to relating to God the Holy Spirit, we sometimes find it hard or mysterious to relate to the Holy Spirit. You know, how we perceive God affects how we relate to God. You know, if we see God as sort of that that angry uh, old man in the clouds who's you know, wanting to get us, this cosmic killjoy. Like how we relate to God and is based on how we perceive God. And, and so when we think of God as that angry man in the cloud, it causes us to create a distance. It creates an animosity or a wall. Maybe if we think of God as untrustworthy or disappointing. I know many people have said, you know, I've had a disappointment with God and it's caused me to put a wall up and to create distance between me and God. But when we understand the loving father or our closest friend, when we think of God as our comforter or our provider, it causes us to lean in. And so how we perceive God affects how we relate to God. Well, when we come to the Holy Spirit and we think just the name himself, like the Holy Spirit, or if you're old school, the Holy Ghost, right? When we think of the Holy Ghost and, and we, it's easy to understand why some people have a hard time relating to the Holy Spirit. We think of him as like a mysterious force to tap into or energy or a power to be moved by. There's a mystery to it and we don't understand, but we've been saying throughout this series that the Holy Spirit isn't a force to tap into but a person to partner with, right? Person to partner. All throughout, we've been seeing how God doesn't move upon us uh, apart from our own participation, but we partner with the moving of God in our lives. Now, one of the ways we understand and relate to the Holy Spirit better is to understand his purposes and his priorities for our lives. And throughout this series, we've been talking about the indwelling spirit. We talked about Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will be with you and will be in you. And it's to your advantage that you'll have a coach and a guide and the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth. We talked in week two about the refreshing Holy Spirit. The Spirit brings spiritual closeness, spiritual strength, Last week, we talked about the empowering Holy Spirit, the, the gifts of the Spirit in operation amongst the church and his people. But, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot is the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces the character of Christ in us. In Galatians 5.22, says the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Who would agree that you could use a little more fruit of the Spirit in your life, right? Always. We could always use more of that fruit in our lives. And so we want to be better people. We want to be more like Jesus. We want to allow the Holy Spirit to work in us and produce his fruit in us. But here's the thing. As much as I like the ease and the simplicity of seedless fruit, fruit was never intended to be seedless, was it? Right? There's no naturally produced fruit that is seedless. By definition, a fruit is a plant's mature ovary. By definition, that's what a fruit is. Uh, and the, 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 they taste great. They provide food and for us and for other species. But a fruit's principal botanical purpose. All right, here's your science lesson for the day. The fruit's principal botanical purpose is the protection and the dissemination of the seed. The fruit's purpose is to protect the seed and help get it spread and planted. 
You think about the apple. The apple falls from the tree. What happens? It rolls away from the base of the tree. Eventually, it rots, and the seed falls to the soil. The seed also attracts birds and animals who then carry it to other places where it will grow and take root. The seed is to be carried and to be planted, to be protected and disseminated. And so when we take the seed out of the fruit, we've changed the fruit's principal purpose. We've made the fruit about consumption and not reproduction. Right? So when it comes to the Holy Spirit's priority in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit isn't just to make us better people. It's not just to make us consumers of religious goods and services. We should reflect Jesus well, but there's more to it, isn't there? See, the fruit's principal purpose is the protection and the spread of the seed. The gospel, the good news of Jesus and the kingdom of God is referred to frequently throughout Scripture as a seed. And when we think of the Holy Spirit's purpose, it's not only about making us better and more Christ-like people. Uh, when, we, when we think that's what it's about, we're missing the point altogether. The fruit of the Spirit is evidenced by personal transformation, but its purpose and intention is for disciple reproduction. It's important that we understand that. The role of the Spirit in our lives is, yes, to make us more like Christ, to transform us personally, but it's also to create another harvesting crop of disciples. Jesus said we would be identified by his true disciples with a trustworthy message because of the fruit in our lives. He said they will know you by your love, by the fruit of the Spirit. But why does it matter if they know you? They will know that you are authentic. They will know that your message you are carrying is legitimately from me because they'll see the fruit of the Spirit at work in your life. But when our spiritual lives become focused on only becoming better people, I only go to church, and if I'm only in the Word of God, and if I'm only coming to Jesus to make my life better, then we're missing the point. There's a reproduction. We don't want to be producing seedless fruit, or else we'll be missing out on this Holy Spirit's priority for our lives and for the kingdom of God. The priority of the Spirit is always about reproducing a new crop of disciples of Jesus. So we've talked about the indwelling spirit. We've talked about the refreshing spirit. We've talked about the empowering spirit. Today I want to talk to you about the anointing spirit. The anointing spirit. See, all throughout scripture, when someone was being set apart to a task, or they were set apart to a calling, a recognized calling of God on their life, whether it's a king or a priest in the Old Testament, they would be anointed with oil. They would be anointed with oil. They would be called apart. We think about that where they would have this oil poured out over their heads from above. It would symbolize a setting apart, an empowering, a fulfillment of God on their life. Maybe you're familiar with the story of David. And as Samuel comes to David's house and he's looking at all the sons of Jesse and the Lord says to, David, uh, to Samuel to take this flask of oil and go and anoint the next king that I will show you for Israel. And so you know the story, if you're familiar with it, that Samuel goes and he looks at all the sons of Jesse and he looks at all of their strength and all the outward appearance. He's thinking that there's some really great candidates here. But the Lord says to him, none of these are the candidates 
candidates that I'm calling. And he says, isn't there one more? And you know how that story goes. Jesse goes, well, there's one more. But he's just the little guy. He's out in the, in the field with the sheep. And so they call for David. And the Lord says, this is the one who I'm calling. And it says in that moment that Samuel took a flask. I think a flask is bigger. We just, we just use these little like convenient jars here at the church. But, you know, they took a flask of oil. And in this moment with all of his family around him, Samuel poured out this oil upon David's head and it covered him from, from head to toe. And we see the symbolizing, the setting apart with the oil anointing him and God's calling and purpose. We see as Jesus was stepping into his public ministry, he came to this baptism moment. And what happened in that baptism moment? As he rose out of the water, do you remember what happened? It says, the voice from heaven spoke and what appeared like a dove. The Holy Spirit came down from heaven upon him. The Holy Spirit anointed Jesus for the plan and purpose, set him apart for his earthly ministry. He was working in partnership with the Holy Spirit. It says that he was led by the Spirit from then on. In Luke chapter 4, this is what Jesus himself said. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. So all through scripture, whether it was the symbolizing of the oil being anointed on those who were called and set apart, whether it was the Holy Spirit coming from heaven upon Jesus, we see this anointing, this setting apart for a purpose and a mission. And so then Jesus says to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this verse that we know so well after the last four weeks, he says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You remember the, the testimony from uh, the day of Pentecost that what looked like tongues of fire came from heaven, that it was anointing them and setting them apart for the calling and purpose that God had for their life. But it wasn't just to anoint them, but what does it say? And you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. See, the fruit of the Spirit, the anointing, is uh, demonstrated, it's evidenced by personal transformation in our lives. We should look more like Jesus, but the purpose is intended for disciple reproduction. You will be my witnesses. When you are anointed, when you are setting apart, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you from heaven, you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. You've been anointed for a purpose. Tell your neighbor, say, you're anointed for a purpose. You're anointed. Well, if you'll turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I want to take a few moments looking at the story of some New Testament believers who experienced this anointing of the Holy Spirit for themselves. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Now, for some context, as we, as we look at this, Acts chapter 9, we learn about Paul, a man who was changed so much by his encounter with Jesus, uh, that he went from being a persecutor of Christians to one of the biggest proclaimers and preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's on one of his missionary trips that Paul and his, some friends, they go to Thessalonica for a few weeks. And they're preaching, and they're teaching, and they're inviting people to follow Jesus. And there's such an uproar in town. There's many people that are hearing this message and receiving the seed of the gospel of Jesus that was causing such an uh, uproar that many more, uh, some of the leaders came and they accused them of stirring up a civil rebellion. They said all this talk about Jesus being the king of kings and the Lord of lords, you're inciting a civil rebellion. Caesar is not going to be happy with when he hears what's going on here. And so they, they run them out of town. 
And so they're forced to leave and they go about and they continue their missionary journey. You know, it had only been a brief stop, but the Bible tells us that quite a few people had put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And the beginnings of a small church were formed in that city. Now, Paul, as we learned later on, was never able to go back to Thessalonica for whatever reason. Uh, But he sent his apprentice, Timothy. He said, I I want you to go, and I want you to check in and and see how those new followers, like, are they even still following Jesus? You know, have they kept the course, or have they all, uh, you know, disbanded and gone their own ways? And the report that he gets back from Timothy is that there are new believers, and they are not just flourishing. They are thriving. They are just growing. And what's happening there is, is astounding that without even having an apostle or pastor or leader that they are continuing to grow and to, uh, to multiply. And so we see in 1 Thessalonians this letter that he is writing back to them in response to some of their questions. And he's highlighting the priority of the Spirit in their lives. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. Paul says, I always thank God for all of you and pray for you constantly. As we pray to our God and Father about you, we think of our faithful work and your loving deeds and the enduring hope we have because of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you and has chosen you to be his own people. For when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words, but also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. And you know of our concern for you from the way we lived when we were with you. So you received the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. And in this way, you imitated both us and the Lord. As a result, you have become an example to all the believers in Greece throughout both Macedonia and Achaia. And And now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere. We got to understand that this is not an ideal setting for producing disciples. Paul alludes in verse 6 to the suffering they faced for embracing the message. As a Gentile community, not only would they face uh, family conflict, whether the family was Jewish or pagan, turning to follow this way of Jesus, people would think they're crazy. You're, you're getting involved in a cult. Well, what are you becoming a part of? There would be tensions with their neighbors. We see that they stopped the practices and worships and the habits of the festivals and cults of the community around them. They were ostracized from their community. We see allegations of treason. You know, you're inciting a riot, declaring that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Like we said, Caesar's not going to be happy about that. Think of the lost friendships or even the lost employment for following this new way. Both Acts 17 and 1 Thessalonians 1 tell this story, and, and we see that it wasn't easy to become a disciple of Jesus and Thessalonica. But here we see that, that this seed, there's something in the way the seed was transferred. There's something in the way that it was planted that made it stick and grow. And so I think it's something that we can take comfort in and that can boost our courage today as witnesses for Jesus. And the first thing I see is this, is that you don't need to convince people. You don't need to convince people. For some of us, that should just be like a sigh of relief right there. Verse 5 says, when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words, but with power. Why? Because the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. 
Now, some people love a lively debate. Where's all the lively debaters? You're like, I just love a great debate, right? You don't even have to be right, you know? You're just like, I just love being in a debate, right? Uh, some of us, we just cringe at the idea of having a debate. We're just like, oh, I just hate everything about it. But we haven't been called to be God's great debaters. He didn't say, you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my debaters. He says, you will be my witnesses. Have you ever been witness to an accident? I remember a few years ago, my friend and I were driving and the girl in front of us was driving and this car just backed out of the laneway right beside her and she went to avoid it and actually went up on two wheels like this and I thought she was about to flip, you know, and her car came back down and we kind of all came, whoa, what just happened? What did we just witness? And the man got out of his car and he was yelling at this girl that it was her fault and this young, you know, young teenage girl, probably a fairly new driver, it's kind of like, you know, and my friend and I, we're like, it's not her fault. Like, we saw the whole thing. And as the police came, and what did we have to do? We had to report. But our role wasn't to convince the officer of what happened, was it? Our role was to simply report what we had witnessed, what we had seen, and what we had heard. What had we experienced in this moment and allow the officer's investigation to lead him to a conclusion, our job as witnesses to the gospel isn't to convince people what has happened. We are just to say what we've seen and what we've heard. And then it's the role of the Holy Spirit to guide people into the truth. Now, some of us, public speaking is the number one fear that we have. And especially speaking to others sometimes about Jesus creates a lot of fear in us. We have the fear that we won't know enough, that we won't uh, explain it clearly enough. We, are, you know, we have the fear that we won't be able to maybe answer questions or challenges. But really, I think it's that the ultimate fear is that we, we won't be able to convince people. We won't be able to convince people that what we're saying is true. But I love how Paul, he, he talks about his approach to sharing his faith, how he witnessed. One of the greatest witnesses and evangelists in all of human history. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he talks about his approach to sharing his faith. This is what he says. When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. Have you ever had someone try to convince you that you needed something, whether it was to buy their product or to you know, employ their service? I remember a couple of years ago, I was at the grocery store, and they asked me, like, do you have the PC optimum banking plan? And I said, no, I don't. She said, well, let me tell you more about it. And I said, no, thanks. But she said, went on anyways. You know, you can earn the points, and there's free banking, and the fees are lower, and, and all the reasons that she gave me why I should do PC banking. And as I looked at it, I thought, that's a good plan. That sounds good. And so she goes, so do you want it? I said, No. Well, I haven't convinced you that it's like a great, you know, rates and it's great, it's easy and you collect, yeah, you've convinced me that it's a good product, but I don't have a conviction that I need it. How do you know that convincing without conviction is insufficient? 
This is what I've discovered. I can convince people in their heads that the gospel is true. I can convince people and I can tell them all the arguments and the apologetics about why it's a good idea to put your faith in Jesus Christ. But there's something between your head and your heart. That's conviction. You can convince people, but if they're not convicted by the Spirit that it's true, it's insufficient. It's not your role to convince someone. You can give them all the information. The Holy Spirit brings conviction. Now, try to convince someone to embrace something that's going to cause them frustration, pain, even harm. You're never going to convince someone to do something that's going to be a sacrifice for them unless there's a deeper conviction at work. Paul says you receive the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. See, Paul convinced them in their heads, but as soon as they met some oppositions, they'd be like, yeah, I'm out of here. It's not worth it. Right? But they had a conviction in their heart brought on by the Holy Spirit. The anointing of the Holy Spirit isn't just becoming a better people. It's about producing a new crop of disciples. And it's not from convincing people or debating people. It's about being in partnership with the Holy Spirit. See, all that we do is we invite. We proclaim what we've seen and heard, and the Holy Spirit convinces, convinces and convicts. Sometimes it gets around opposite. Sometimes I meet people who are at church who are like, I don't know what's going on in my life, but the Holy Spirit is convincing and convicting me that I need something more. And so we get it flipped around, and the Holy Spirit brings them here, and we just say, okay, well, let us explain to you what we've seen and heard. Right? It goes both ways. You don't have to convince people. You just imitate and demonstrate. You know, you can tell what people really value by what they celebrate, can't you? Right? You just got to listen to them and hear what they're celebrating. You'll know what they value. And, and this is what Paul is celebrating. He looks at the Thessalonians. He says to them, you know, I'm thrilled that you guys are still following Jesus, first off. But secondly, he says, uh, you imitated both us and the Lord. And as a result, you have become an example. And now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere. See, for Paul, it was more than just inviting people and baptizing people and, you know, getting people to follow Jesus. For, for Paul, making converts wasn't enough. That wasn't the goal. And it was more than teaching people the content of the scriptures because scholars weren't enough. We don't want just to have converts and scholars but we want fully mature disciples. And, and Paul, for him, success was found in disciples who are reproducing disciples of their own. To him, that was the goal. A fully formed, mature disciple is one who is uh, exemplifying and making disciples of their own. That's the goal. Imitators of Christ and demonstrators of life in him in partnership with the conviction and the convincing of the Holy Spirit. And Paul, the way he went about it, he said, i be an imitator. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. He says, you are imitating me, and now others are imitating you. He says, I know, uh, and, and in verse uh, 5, he talks about this. He says, you know the concern that we had for you because of the way we lived when we were with you. In, in chapter 2, he says, we loved you so much, we shared with you not only God's good news, but also our own lives too. The way we preach and teach and be witnesses to the gospel of Jesus is kind of a messy way. It's a really involved way, but it's about sharing our lives with people. 
Sometimes we just show up and we just proclaim the message, but more often than not, we are living the message. We are sharing that. We're doing life together, encouraging them, urging them, teaching them about God's calling and design for their lives, life on life together. You know, this form of discipleship, it takes effort and it takes time. It's inconvenient. Sometimes it's awkward. Sometimes it's frustrating. It would be easier for us just to focus our spiritual lives on us. God, it's just between you and me. This, I want to become a better person. I just want to be more like you. That's the easiest form, but that's not full discipleship. That's part of it, but there's another part beyond just being a better person. The fruit of the Spirit is evidenced by personal transformation, but it's intended for disciple reproduction. I don't want to be a church culture that celebrates seedless fruit. I want to celebrate that the gospel is going out from here, and that what we've received, we are freely sharing with others and seeing a new crop of disciples. So I want to ask you this question this morning. What's your life's message? For Paul, his life's message was always about pointing and pushing people towards Jesus Christ. You know, I've been saying that our spiritual lives can't be focused just on us becoming better people followers of Jesus, better people. But you know what makes you a better person? Is when you know someone's following you. You know, my kids, I've been telling you, they're starting to learn how to drive. And so it makes me more conscious that like whatever I'm doing, they're gonna do, right? And so like 10 and two, and like being off your phone and keeping the speed limit, I'm working hard at it, right? Because I can't say to them, you're doing it wrong when they're like, we're just doing what you do, (laughs) right? Right? And so... You don't have to focus on being a better driver. You just have to be focused on developing someone who's following you, and that will make you be a better driver. Same as being a Christian. I don't have to focus on Jesus. How am I following you to be a better person? I said, if I'm making a disciple, that alone will encourage me to be a better disciple myself. What's your message? Who are you imitating? Find someone whose spiritual life inspires you. Maybe you're new to faith. Maybe you've been sort of stuck in a rut over a period of years, but find someone whose faith or prayer life, their outreach or their compassion or their worship, or their leadership inspires you and say, can we spend some time together? Can, I always tell young people, you have to chase your mentors. A lot of times we think that someone's going to see us, they're going to see something in us. Because of that, they're going to invest in us. But this is what I've discovered, that people who are worthy of imitating are often busy themselves, right? And so you got to chase your mentors. you got to say, would you spend some time with me? Tell me, talk to me about why you do what you do. Chase your mentors. might only be for a short moment, or it might be for an awesome lifetime journey. The key to staying fresh in any area of your life, I think, is being with people who inspire you. Who can inspire you in your faith? And lastly, who's imitating you? Statistics show that 75% of new believers come to Christ through some form of relationship or invitation. 75% of people come because someone took some time to invest in them, to invite them, to spend time with them. And that's 75%. I know 100% of new believers need someone to come alongside of them to help them uh, become uh, mature in their faith. But it's not just about who can I preach to. The question is this, who can I share my life with? Who can I share my life with? You know, we talk a lot about being an intergenerational church, and I love that. And to me, that means not just being a church that has many generations, but a church that has many generations working together. 
for one purpose and cause. I was at youth this past week and uh, one of our retired gentlemen was there and he was uh, leaving at the end of the night. I was coming to pick up my kids and I said, hey, what are you doing, Dan? And then he, Dan works security. Do you know retired people can work at security at youth? It's amazing. Riley, do you want some retired people that are like, hey, we'd love to help out. Kids ministry downstairs. How many know you're never too old for kids ministry? You might not be able to get down on your hands and knees anymore, but we can find a role for you. And, uh, you know, uh, but Dan, he was leaving, and I said, Dan, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm just driving a couple of the guys home, and we're going to stop for burgers on our way. He said, we often stop for burgers. And I thought, this is incredible. This is one of our men who's retired who says, I want to share my life with some of our youth. I want to invest in them. That's how he did it. For others of you, you, you do other things. You are involved in the kids' ministry. That's an investment into the next generation. You're producing disciples. The mentoring isn't about age. It's not about having all the answers or having everything perfectly figured out. It's about how do I share my life and my life experience to help others come to a knowledge of Christ and maturing in Christ. For some of you, you know, you have such a trust in God, and maybe it's been through uh, in your marriage, or maybe it's been through a divorce, and you can share with others how your trust in God has helped you navigate that. For others, you can share with God what it means to follow, to share with people what it means to follow God in your career and in your calling. Others of you have overcome addiction or failures or setbacks. Some of you have found hope in the midst of anxiety or depression. Some of you found comfort in the midst of significant loss. Others of you have struggled with questions about faith in God and you relate so well to other people who are also asking the same questions. See, God has put us into a body of many experiences so that we can help shape and we can help take the seed of the gospel and we can help it grow and we can help it be transplanted so that we'll reproduce more disciples of Jesus. God wants to use your life story, no matter what is in your story, to help other people in their story come to know Jesus. Here's what I want us to know at the end of this series. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit. If I did a poll right now, I think almost 100% of us would say we want a great move of God in our city, great move of God in our region. We want the move of God in our church. We've been talking about almost 100 years, two years to the 100-year anniversary. We want to go into that with a move of God, but this is what I believe, that we want a move of God, and God wants a people he can move through. We're going to cry out for revival, and God's going to say, I want to bring revival by my spirit, but I only am going to bring it in partnership with the people who are ready and able and willing to, to be used by me. So I'm excited. I'm excited because I know there's people in your life who you already know God has put there for you to share your life with and to share the seed of the gospel. I'm gonna invite you to stand this morning. And we're gonna pray. We're gonna pray and we're gonna ask for a move of God. We're gonna ask for God to fill this place and all the places of worship in our city and all the places in our region with more people who are hungry to know God, who are hearing about the gospel, but who aren't convinced only by our words, but who are convicted by the Holy Spirit that what they're hearing is true. We're gonna ask God to move and then we're gonna say, God, would you move through me? Help me to have the courage. Help me to have the boldness. Help me to have the understanding that partnering with you 
It's such a joy, something so great in my life. And so, Jesus, I pray, Lord, right now in this place, that you would give us a, a, a conviction of our own. God, that's not just about becoming better followers of Jesus. That's not just about becoming more Christ-like in our demeanor, God, but it's actually about becoming people who are your witnesses, telling people about you, using our words, but also using our lives to share with people the truth, the seed of the gospel. God, I pray that we would be surprised, that we would be shocked where we would see that seed growing, God. I pray that there, you would already be ahead of us. Holy Spirit, bringing convincing, bringing conviction. Lord, sometimes you're already doing the work and we just come alongside and, and share the facts with people who are just wanting to know the truth. You've already done all the work. Others of us, we've been praying for a long time for some people in our lives where we presented all the facts, we presented all the truth, God. We were praying, Holy Spirit, that somehow you would be able to break through and bring clarity and conviction. But we just pray, Jesus, today that we wouldn't be a seedless church. God, that there would be generations of Christ followers after us who would receive the seed, Lord, because we were planted, because we shared, because we watered and tended, and because your Holy Spirit brought the increase. In Jesus' name we pray.